0: I'm Avery Smith, and you're listening to Blessed Are the Binary Breakers, a multi faith podcast of transgender stories. Did you like that? My wife, Leah, whipped up this new theme song for me. She's the best. My friends, it turns out that I don't have a guest for this month. There's just been so much going on. I've been busy with protests and educating my people, including my home church, which hired me as a virtual intern for the summer. I'm so thankful for that because I love Grace Presbyterian of Tuscaloosa, Alabama so deeply. The people there have always shown an openness and even an eagerness to learn about various marginalized communities and to act for justice, so I'm really happy and grateful to be a part of that. But yeah, it means I've been really busy, and prospective guests have also been really busy, and I bet that you have been really busy. So instead of an interview today, this is going to be a shortish episode, like the bonus one I published near the start of June. This episode will be continuing the theme that I started in that episode, the theme of solidarity and intersectionality. It's a reminder for my fellow white folks that many trans persons are persons of color, and we must recognize how the intersections of those identities impact them. It's a reminder for all of us who experience some form of marginalization that we must not allow our enemies to divide and conquer us, that we must stop oppressing one another in the hopes of advancing a little bit ourselves. It's a reminder of the stories we share, the struggles we share, the goals we share. I will be talking about Hagar, or Hagar, one of the biblical figures who is nearest and dearest to my queer little heart. One thing I really love about Hagar is that my Christian tradition shares her with the Jewish and Muslim traditions. While Muslims do not have the exact story that I'm going to read about Hagar, they actually hold her in the highest esteem of all of us, I would say. To them, from Hagar and her son Ismail, stemmed the line that led to Islam. Hagar's journey in the desert and discovery of a well are commemorated in the Hajj, the Muslim pilgrimage to Mecca, and Ismail is said to have helped his father, Ibrahim, build God's house, the Kaaba. Meanwhile, Christianity has a nasty history of denigrating Hagar and Ismail, or at least mainstream white Christianity does. As I'll talk about today, African Americans have long connected their own story to Hagar's, And I have found that many transgender persons do as well. The hatred and abuse that Hagar suffers at the hands of two faithful people, Sarah and Abraham, resonates with those of us who have likewise been persecuted and cast out by our fellow people of faith. And like Hagar, we are able to recognize that the God worshipped by those who hurt us, the God whom those people claim does not belong to us, is indeed our God. Hagar names God as one who sees her in her suffering. God sees trans people too, in whatever pain we experience at the hands of transphobia and cissexism. God is our God, not just the God of our oppressors. And God walks with us through our struggles, promising blessings to come. What I'm about to share is actually a sermon that I wrote for a seminary class a year ago. In this sermon, I connect Hagar's story to that of transgender women traveling in the caravans of Latin Americans that made their way towards the United States a couple years back. While the news articles from which I draw, which share these women's stories, are a few years old, I believe it is still important to get their stories out there, to tell them and to remember them because trans persons are still coming into the United States and getting detained by ICE where they are treated horrifically. We must continue to speak of them, to fight for them, to raise their voices. Abolishing ICE is a transgender issue. Solidarity is vital. And I actually got to preach about Hagar again just the other week. That sermon borrows a good bit from the one you're about to hear, but it focuses on solidarity in the movement for black lives. I'll leave a link to that sermon if you're interested. So let's get into my sermon. I wrote it from a Christian lens, and so I do speak of God and briefly of Jesus, but I hope that there is much in it that is pertinent to persons of any faith or no faith as well. Our lives really are bound up in each other. Let's begin with a reading from the book of Genesis that is shared by Christians and Jewish folks alike. It's chapter 16, verses 1 through 13, and it's my own translation of the Hebrew. Please be warned that it does talk about sexual violence and physical violence. Sarai, Abram's wife, failed to bear children for him. But she had an enslaved Egyptian named Hagar, and Sarai said to Abram, Look now, the Holy One has restrained me from bearing children, so go into my slave girl. Perhaps I will obtain my children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So Sarai, the wife of Abram, took Hagar, her enslaved Egyptian, and gave her to Abram, her husband, to be his woman. He raped Hagar, and she conceived, and when she saw that she had conceived, she cursed her mistress with her eyes. And Sarai said to Abram, My wrong be upon you. I gave my slave girl into your arms, but now that she sees that she has conceived, she curses me with her eyes. May the Holy One judge between me and you. But Abram said to Sarai, Look, your slave girl is in your hand. Do to her whatever seems good in your eyes. So Sarai did her best to put Hagar in her place, beat her, brutalized her, and Hagar ran away from her. But an angel of the Holy One found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to shore. And Zee said, Hagar, slave girl of Sarai, where have you come from and to where are you going? She said, My mistress Sarai, I am running away from her. The angel of the Holy One said, Turn back to your mistress. Humble yourself under her hand. But the angel of the Holy One also said to her, I will make many your offspring, so many that none could count them for their abundance. And the angel of the Holy One also said to her, Look. You are pregnant, and will bear a son, and you shall call him Ishmael. God listens, because the Holy One has listened to your suffering. And he will be a wild ass of a man, his hand against everyone, and the hand of all against him, and he shall live at odds with all his kin. And Hagar called out a name for the Holy One speaking to her. You are El Roy, God who sees me. Because she said, for did I really right here look upon the one who sees me? A word from God for the people of God. It is some 2,000 years BCE. The sun blazes hot over the land of Canaan, where a woman round with pregnancy trudges across the wilderness. Her face itches with sunburn, her blackened eye and blistered feet throb, but she focuses, determined on the blur in the distance. It could be a bit of shrubbery or even a spring. It could be life. It is 2018 years CE. The sun blazes hot over hard stretches of Mexican highway, burning into the shoulders of a throng of women. They chat about all sorts of things as they walk, fashion, food, strategies for avoiding harassment. Glancing behind them, one woman cries out with excitement. She has spotted a pickup truck headed their way. They might be able to hitch a ride, save their weary feet several miles of walking. They all stick out their thumbs, waiting, hoping. A good three or four thousand years, not to mention an entire ocean, separate these women. Hagar the Egyptian in a foreign land, fleeing enslavement and abuse. Latina trans women fleeing the violence of poverty and transmisogyny. But their pain and struggle, hope and faith are a cord, stretching between their stories that all the miles and all the millennia cannot sever. Let us study their stories side by side, see how they interweave with one another, Hagar pops up in the Genesis story not as her own person, but as a solution to a problem. Sarah is infertile, yet Abraham is meant to be the patriarch of a people so great they outnumbered the stars. It is a convenient point for the biblical author to mention that this whole time Sarah has had an enslaved Egyptian with her, someone whose womb is right there for the taking. And at Sarah's suggestion... Abraham takes it. The text does not call it rape, and too many interpreters across the centuries have failed to call it rape, but I'm going to name it. It was rape. Hagar has no say in this matter. Hagar has no voice that her masters care about. Sarah needs a surrogate, and Hagar has no right to object. Womanist theologian Renita Weems calls this story of an enslaved woman's abuse familiar, even haunting to African-American female readers. An enslaved woman forced into sex with her master, despised by her mistress, desired for her fertility, but abused and cast out for that very thing? The parallels Weems' notes are uncanny and clear. Most importantly, she says, the relationship between Sarah and Hagar should be proof that white and black women, although they share in the experience of gender oppression, are not natural allies in the struggles against patriarchy and exploitation. Think about that, and how that ties into our feminist movements today. White women fail to be natural allies to black women in the struggle. I would expand that and say that able-bodied women fail to be natural allies to disabled women, cisgender women fail to be natural allies to transgender women, and on and on. Sarah is only one rung up from Hagar in the social world of Genesis. Another womanist, Abra Love, notes how even though only one of them is labeled slave, both Sarah and Hagar were considered property. They both belonged to Abraham, Do with as he pleased. Sarah's only leg up is that she's Abraham's primary partner, of a higher class than Hagar. Just one rung, but oh does Sarah use it to her advantage. She will plant her foot on Hagar's face and shove Hagar lower down if that's what it takes to get a little higher up herself. We see this kind of behavior plenty in our own day. White women using racism, men of color using sexism in their efforts to win acceptance from the white men in power. Poor white people who are happy that at least they're not poor black people. Cisgender lesbians calling trans women predators, gay men setting their dating profiles to no fats, no femmes, no Asians. You would think that experiencing oppression ourselves would give us a little compassion for one another, but instead we swallow the lies that our oppressors feed us, lashing out at one another in order to advance ourselves. Thus Sarah, a woman who knew the stigma of infertility and who very likely experienced sexual violence herself when her husband gave her away as a wife to Pharaoh in Egypt, controlled the body of another woman, used and abused her, and then threw Hagar away after she no longer served a purpose. And thus some members of caravans, all in search of asylum, of a life without violence, persecute the gay and trans members of their group. One trans woman, who survived the 2,700-mile journey to San Francisco, named Charlotte, discusses the taunts and the threats that she and her trans companions were subjected to on the journey. She explains how churches that offered the caravan shelter sometimes turned the trans women away, telling them to dress like men if they wanted food and shelter. And how men in the caravan would catcall them and scare them and sometimes even steal from them. We don't like to think about asylum seekers in such a negative light, and rightfully so. All of these people do deserve asylum from the violence they face, but that doesn't mean that they're perfect. To romanticize them is to dehumanize them, just as demonizing is. In cultures and communities across the world, victims can become abusers. The oppressed can be oppressors at the same exact time. And so Charlotte and her trans companions find themselves marginalized, even among the marginalized, experiencing violence at the hand of others fleeing violence. And so Hagar, Pregnant with a baby, she had no choice in conceiving, skin bruised by another woman's fists, finds herself in the wilderness, a little trickling spring, the only thing between her and death by thirst. And where is she fleeing to, anyway? The women in the caravan have a destination in mind, the United States, where they believe that their dreams of security and prosperity can come true. But it is unlikely that Hagar had anywhere to go when she fled from her abusers. The angel asks her, after all, where she has come from and where she is going. But Hagar only answers the first question. She is getting as far away from her mistress as possible, and that is as far as she's been able to plan out. Hagar has no resources and nowhere to run to. The text does not even say that she cried out for God's help. And why would she? That's the god of her masters, of her abusers. What help could the god who let her be enslaved and abused possibly offer her? Oh, Hagar, is there an Egyptian goddess of enslaved women? Is there an Egyptian goddess of abused and discarded women, of starving foreigners and hopeless mothers? Did you have a god to cry out to under that blazing noon sun? Or were you utterly alone? Hagar did not cry out to God, yet God found her beside that desolate spring. An angel of God comes to Hagar and offers her hard words. Return to your mistress, Sarah. Humble yourself under her hand. For me, that is the hardest part of this very hard text. The god of liberation and justice telling a woman to return to her abuse? I cannot accept that. Yet, Hagar seems to accept this difficult command. It's a path that leads her backwards into suffering before it leads her out. Because her response is not to refuse or to protest— but to give this God a new name, to become the only human being in all of the Bible to explicitly create a new name for God, El Roy, the God who sees me. And then she goes back, back to Sarah, her abuser, to Abraham, her rapist, and Sarah's enabler. She goes back, and if this were a movie, we'd all be shouting at the screen, don't do it. Why would you go back? What are you doing? Oh, Hagar, I am sorry for the times I've questioned and judged people who go back, who stay with or return to their abusers. After all, they know better than I ever could what the best option for them is. Sometimes they have no other choice. Society has not prepared another choice for them. For you, for instance, a pregnant woman wandering alone? God knows what fate would have awaited you out there in the wilderness. Charlotte, one of the trans women whose caravan story we've been following, is also one who turned back. She left her home in Honduras where she'd experienced death threats from MS-13 gang members in 2016 and found asylum in Mexico. But when her grandfather died, she made the journey back to Honduras, the land of her affliction. Not long after the funeral, MS-13 found her, raped her, told her they'd kill her if she didn't leave. So she fled a second time back to Mexico and then onward to the United States. Likewise, Hagar returned to the place of her abuse and enslavement. She gave birth to her baby there, and mother and child lived with Abraham and Sarah for over a decade. And how can we, who have not been in these women's shoes, judge their choices? The text claims that God told Hagar to return to her mistress Sarah, but we know that this is not the end of God's message to Hagar. We know that that was not the end of God's activity in her life. During that encounter with God's angel, Hagar was also given a promise. That her son, Ishmael, would be a wild ass of a man. In other words, slavery's chains would not bind him forever. He would be free. Wildly free. Perhaps it was this promise that carried Hagar through those many years more of slavery. After that angelic encounter, you might say that nothing changed for Hagar. She goes right back to her life of slavery. But truly everything has changed. Before, Hagar had no hope, no god to cry out to. After, Hagar knows the truth, that El Roy, God sees her, sees and cares for the most abused and oppressed of us all. For her second journey into the wilderness, this time with a teenage boy and having been forced away by her masters, Hagar has a god to cry out to. In Genesis 21, she finds a little shrubbery to shield her child from the sun. And then, weeping, she lifts her voice, and God hears her. God sees her. God responds and gives her and her son what they need to survive. My friends, I know that this is a difficult text. A painful, frustrating text. But this, this is the good news within it the good news is that the god whom the oppressors claim is truly the god of the oppressed. Throughout the millennia, the truth of this god who sees and responds has never been buried for long. Like Hagar, enslaved black people knew that the god of the white enslavers was really their god, a liberator who would set them free. Like Hagar, Charlotte and her transgender friends on the caravan knew that the God of the churches that turned them away was their God too, and would see them through their arduous journey. Like Hagar, do you see the God who sees you? Do you trust God enough to cry out to her and demand a response? Do you trust that she will hear? And, beloved, you know I have to ask you the flip side to that question, too. Do you know that God sees the ones whom you oppress? When have you been Sarah, knowing oppression yourself, yet perpetuating oppression upon others? When have you been Abraham, allowing that abuse to go on without interfering, just as guilty in your passivity as the arm that strikes? But even though we should be ashamed for the times we have failed, even though we must do better, the good news, the miraculous news, is that we cannot thwart God. The transgender child kicked out and left homeless. The desperate people we turn away at the border or strip of their children to lock in cages. The pregnant teen forced out of church the black lives that are stolen by a corrupt system, while too many of us look away, God sees them all. And from the story of Hagar's flight from slavery, we know that God does not just see and hear, but feels. Feels deepest compassion that moves her to act, Moving forward in time, we also know, from the life, death, and resurrection of God incarnate, Jesus of Nazareth, that God does not just see and hear, but experiences. Is right there with us, in the heart of our suffering. Sharing our burdens when we are oppressed. Challenging us to do better when we do the oppressing. Glory to God may we live like we know that god sees